The piano is actually a percussion instrument if you think about it. Wind instruments, of course, are powered by wind. Percussion instruments are powered by one thing hitting another thing, and when you play a piano, you press the key, but what's actually happening is, under the hood, a hammer is striking a string to produce the desired tone. Which means that every piano player who's ever told a drummer joke, well, they're just making fun of themselves. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played on the piano and music played on other instruments, and usually music played on the piano in combination with other instruments. We're going to be talking about a great pianist on this episode, and I'm excited to get into it. So turn the volume up nice and high, find a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. I still don't have an actual acoustic piano, thus the piano that I play is an electric one. It does have hammer action and it feels really good, but there are no hammers hitting strings. Every piano that you hear on this show is just a sample of a real piano, albeit a pretty lovely piano sample. I've always kind of held that up as one of the markers of when my studio has really become what I want it to be, that I'll be able to have a real piano to play every day and to write at. For a while when I taught, um, when I directed a jazz band at a high school in San Francisco, there was of course a lovely piano there that I would just go in and play. And it's so much fun to write at a real piano, you know, to open it up and really see the hammers hitting the strings and to feel, you know, that immediate response of the sound coming out of the instrument at you. I always love writing on piano. I've got an acoustic drum set set up, so I'm halfway there. But one of these days, I will have an actual acoustic piano, and that will be a wonderful day. So welcome to the show, everybody. I am so glad that you're here. Thanks so much for listening to all of you, and thanks so much to everyone who's been spreading the word. We've been finding lots of new listeners lately. I've been hearing from new listeners. Uh, getting some really wonderful emails from folks just sort of with feedback about the show or music recommendations. And I welcome those. It's lovely to hear from you all. If you want to reach out, you can reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. All good ways of getting in touch with me, sending questions for Q&A episodes, feedback, song suggestions, anything like that. I've gotten some really great suggestions for music lately. And uh, thanks everybody who sent them along. You know, I I listen to a lot of good music and I like think of this show as a, as a way that I can share a lot of the music that I like with all of you. But, you know, over the year and change that I've been doing this, I've also learned that one of the great side benefits of this show is that I learn about a lot of the music that you like. And, you know, I don't know everything. I'm not some DJ, some guy with a wild music collection who knows every single band and every single album. I know a lot about music, but I know more about, you know, playing music and listening and hearing what's going on in the music than I do necessarily about every every, every band and every recording. So when people recommend me stuff, I really do listen to it. And it's super cool to discover great new bands. Thanks to all of you. Strong Songs, of course, is an entirely listener-supported show. Uh, Thanks so much to all of my patrons who support this show. We've got more people over on the Patreon than ever, and that is making it possible for me to dedicate more time to each episode, which I think is kind of showing in in the overall quality of the show. It's been fun to put more time and more work into it. And yeah, I really want this to be one of the main things that I'm doing, and all of my patrons are making that possible. So thanks to all of you. If you would like to know more about how to support me making this show, you can head over to patreon.com slash 
strong songs and maybe find a tier that works for you. I don't sell ads. I'm not part of a podcast network. That's really the only way that I make money off of this show. So if you want to go check that out, I would really appreciate it. Last thing before we start, I have a newsletter. I haven't mentioned this on the show in a little while, but I have a newsletter that I send out every so often, and I think I'm going to be sending one out this week. It's sort of, it's pretty chill. I send it out about every month or so, and it's got music recommendations, articles I've read, things I'm thinking about. Um, Nothing too dramatic, but it is kind of a cool thing to sign up for. If you would like to sign up for it, you can find a link for that in the show notes, along with links to all the other things that I just mentioned. All right, let's get into this episode's song. It's a very, very strong song from a very strong performer, and it's a little bit different than anything we've done on the show before. I'm super excited to get into it, and this is another one of those question songs. It's a song uh, based all around a question that you would ask of a man who is looking for somewhere to hide on a very fateful, you could even say, apocalyptic day. Who is that man, and what is that question? Well, there's only one way to find out. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? We're gonna run to all on that day. That's right. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the one and only Nina Simone and her incredible, timeless 1965 interpretation of the traditional African American spiritual Sinner Man. This song, this incredible song, I first heard this song actually during the climactic uh, art heist sequence at the end of the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, which, by the way, is a very good movie. Uh, Sort of underrated. Is it underrated? I don't know. It's a really good movie, though, and I recommend watching it. And this was the first time that I heard this song. I didn't know who was singing it when I saw this movie in 1999. Um, I thought maybe it was, you know, had been recorded for the movie, and it wasn't until later that I realized that this extremely dramatic, you know, Repulsive recording was just a live recording of Nina Simone that had been repurposed for the film and played almost in full, you know, except for the the instrumental breakdown in the middle. They play almost the entire recording, including the big cadenzas at the end during this really cool heist sequence. And it's just beautifully fit to the to the movie. It works so so well. I don't know whose idea that was making the movie, but they must have realized, you know, so, oh, we've got this great 10-minute Nina Simone recording that we can use for this. So it was very fitting and it was cool to to learn who it actually was and to hear the full recording. What do we do? What do we do? Start arresting people. Come on. So after seeing that movie, I did look up what the song was. You know, I was in music school and was like, this is a great song. What is this? So I looked it up and found out that it was Nina Simone. And that was actually kind of my first exposure to Nina Simone. I'd probably heard some of her other more famous songs. You know, she's a big deal and her songs kind of play ambiently all over the place, as if you live in America in particular. But I wasn't aware of her as an artist, which I actually kind of see as a failing of my musical education. I think that Nina Simone should be taught a little bit more because she's a fascinating and complicated figure that I I wish I had known more about earlier in my life. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Cinderman would continue to follow me, though, because the one section that doesn't play in the Thomas Crown Affair, which is the instrumental breakdown in the middle, is actually sampled on a couple of really big hip-hop tracks from the early 2000s.
And I would hear those and again think, oh man, what is this? I know this. What is this sample? And then realize that it was from the same recording, that it was Nina Simone and from her arrangement of Sinner Man. So this recording is a very important recording that kind of just keeps cropping up in the culture over and over. I decided to do this song at the start of year two. I've since then been learning a lot about Nina Simone and man, she's got quite a story. I really recommend learning more about her and we're going to talk a little bit about that on this episode as well as of course doing a musical analysis of this performance which is just one of many songs I could have focused on. If you, like me, feel like you knew Nina Simone's name, but you maybe just thought she was a singer, you didn't know that much about her as an artist, you weren't aware that she's also an incredible piano player, or that she was a major figure in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, I highly recommend watching the Netflix documentary, What Happened Miss Simone. And I'm feeling good. This was directed by Liz Garbus. It came out, I believe, in 2015. And it tells, it's a non-narrated documentary, so there isn't someone telling you what to think. They just present a whole bunch of clips, and they interview people who knew her. And they're, they're, you hear a lot, actually, from her daughter, Lisa. And you get a picture of a very complicated and troubled person who had a life that, you know, had ups and also had some pretty serious downs. It's a remarkable look at a very remarkable person. Her life was extremely shaped by her experience as a black woman in America. She grew up with not a lot of money in North Carolina and was a piano prodigy from a very young age. She had dreams of becoming a great concert pianist and then kind of got sidetracked just by the need to make a living and just started singing one night, at least as she tells it. She had a gig at a, at a club and they wanted her to sing. So she started singing tunes and she had this amazing voice that came out. And next thing you knew, she was a major star singing, you know, Essentially, what essentially at the time were pop songs playing piano and she got then into the world of jazz and into blues and rock and roll and she kind of merged all of these styles with her classical piano training into something that was just completely distinct. So I'm not going to recap her whole life story here. I just really, I really can't recommend watching that documentary enough. You'll learn a lot about American history. You'll learn a lot about her place in it and a lot about her as a person because while I'm going to be talking about the music and we can listen to her voice in particular, but her piano playing, the way that she plays, seeing her play is a really important part of understanding Nina Simone. She was a powerful presence. When she was on stage, she would command the stage, especially later in her career. And this performance of Sinner Man, I think, captures that power as well as anything else she recorded. And she also had a darkness in her that I think expressed itself through the music as well as in, you know, some, some pretty unfortunate ways in her actual life, especially later in her career. So I really recommend that documentary. Go watch it after you listen to this episode. It's very, very cool. Let's get into the song. Can't hide you the rock crowd. I ain't gonna hide you down all on that day. Sinnerman is the epic-length final track from Nina Simone's 1965 album Pastel Blues. It's more than 10 minutes long, and it's uh, from a live recording in New York City. There's a couple of live tracks on this album, though some of the tracks were also recorded in the studio. It is preceded by Simone's gut-wrenching rendition of Strange Fruit, and to me anyway, the two songs kind of exist as counterparts to one another, even though they're different songs. There's just something about hearing the one and then hearing the other that makes for a moving and powerful experience, you know, something about the sin and then the judgment. Southern trees Barren strange fruit Blood 
blood on the leaves And blood at the roots Hearing those songs back-to-back is actually one of the reasons that I recommend listening to Pastel Blues in its entirety and hearing the song in the context of the album. Personnel on the album is consistent on every track, including Sinner Man. It features Lyle Atkinson on the bass, Bobby Hamilton on the drums, and actually two guitar players. It features Rudy Stevenson and Al Shackman on the guitar. Al Shackman seems like a great guy, at least from his interviews in the documentary. He was um, Simone's longtime guitar player. But actually, there are two guitars on this track, and they really only become noticeable at one point. It also, of course, features Nina Simone on vocals and piano. Now, Sinnerman was not written by Nina Simone. This is a traditional African-American spiritual song, and it's been around for quite a while. It had been around for a while. There's a lot of different people who have recorded it. There's nobody who owns it. That's kind of how it works when a song is credited to traditional. It's kind of just a folk song that's been around for a long time, and anyone can sort of record their take on it. This take on it, of course, is what elevates the whole song and makes it into this iconic recording that keeps coming back up, you know, over and over again. And that's all Simone. Nina Simone arranged this. Just as a point of comparison, the first recording of Sinnerman is by Les Baxter and the Les Baxter Orchestra. This is from 1956, so almost 10 years before Simone's version. It's very, very different. So listen to how they did it. Oh, Sinnerman, where you gonna run to? Oh, Sinnerman, where you gonna run to? Oh, Sinnerman, where you gonna run to? All on that day. Run to the sea. So, you know, it's kind of a fun recording on its own, but it's of, it falls far short of Nina Simone's version that she recorded nine years later. It's just far less interesting, less harmonically interesting, there's fewer chords, just there's way less going on. What's most interesting to me about that Les Baxter version is that it demonstrates the many, many different ways that an artist can interpret a traditional song. All right, so let's get into this thing. Let's get into this recording. Let's take it from the very beginning. We're going to talk through the form of the song, the chord changes, and what Nina Simone is playing on the piano, because the piano playing is definitely the thing that takes this song and elevates it to a new level. All right, so let's just start there. Before the vocals even come in, I really, really like this piano part. I know that the piano part during that clapping breakdown is the one that people sample. It's the it's really cool, and uh, for, for a reason, it is the most famous piano part in this recording, but I really like the intro piano part, and I also like how the band comes in. I think it's cool the way that the drums and the bass find the groove, and the three of them lock in together. This is actually the first live recording that I've analyzed on Strong Songs, and it's fun to listen to a live recording because we're just hearing the three musicians on stage. Everything is organic and that means there's like a loosening and a tightening that happens in the groove the way that it naturally does when three musicians play together. So I really like how this intro works. Let's start with the piano part. Alright, so we're in B minor. There are really only four chords in this song and it's kind of moving between B minor and A major, which is a whole step down. So it's kind of going from the one minor to the flat seven major. And this piano part moves between those two things. It kind of starts on a B minor and then it walks down and really quickly touches A major before going back to B minor. So it's this kind of tick-tock effect of going back and forth between the two chords. 
Now, Nina Simone is a really good piano player and she's doing this whole thing with one hand. When I'm actually playing it there, I'm doing it with two hands because I am not as good a piano player as Nina Simone and I wanna get her smoothness. But what's cool about this part, if you learn it on piano, is there are five notes involved. You play that B minor um, triad, which is three notes, and then you play an E and then you play an A. And you can just set your fingers right on it and play it without moving your hand at all. That's the kind of thing that a classically trained piano player would definitely do, someone with good piano technique. Generally speaking, the better a person's technique on an instrument, the less you're going to see their hands move. And if you watch Nina Simone playing piano, it looks like her hands are barely moving at all, even though she's playing a whole bunch of different notes and a bunch of complicated harmony. The reason that she plays this part with one hand is because her left hand comes in in a moment and begins playing something completely different, so she wants to have her left hand free so she can play this little pattern with her right hand while her left hand begins walking around on the bass notes. But for now, she's just playing those five notes with her one hand. So listen for that piano part, and as we listen to it, Check out the bass and the drums and try to hear what they're doing specifically as they enter. Okay, so if you've been listening to this show for a while, you probably know what the drummer is doing. That's Bobby Hamilton again on the drums. He has come in just playing on the hi-hat. He has a little bit of kick drum, like an accent with the kick drum, but he's just playing on a mostly closed hi-hat with both sticks, and he's playing 16th notes to just get that feel. That feel, that groove, defines a whole lot of this song, especially this early section. He kind of builds up and eventually goes up higher and starts playing on, I think, the ride cymbal. But um, he starts out here on the hi-hat, and it's this very closed groove that drives things forward. So that's just a closed hi-hat. Sounds kind of like this. If you've been listening to Strong Songs for a while, you were aware of my thump, pop, sizzle groove breakdown, and this groove is definitely an exception to that. There's a little bit of thump in that he occasionally hits the kick drum. There's a lot of sizzle, because the sizzle is that hi-hat, but there is not a lot of pop. In fact, there is no real pop during this whole beginning part of the song, which is uh, different than your average groove. Last thing is the bass. Lyle Atkinson on the bass comes in with a pretty cool little bass technique that you will hear a lot with upright bass players. Now he's playing an upright um, acoustic bass, and what he does is a sort of a double stop with a B and an F sharp. So he's playing a fifth. He's playing the root, which is B, but he's also playing um, an F sharp above it. He's playing two notes, not exactly a chord, just sort of an interval called a double stop on the bass, and um, it just gives him a kind of warmer, bigger sound. And he sort of strums that a little bit, sounds like this. Now, the one word that I would use to describe Nina Simone's arrangement of Sinner Man is propulsive. This is a propulsive song, thematically and musically, and I think they start that right away, um, especially in the drums and the piano. The piano is playing this very, you know, kind of repeating tick-tock kind of a piano part. It's just like grooving along and really kind of moving really steadily. Then the drums come in with this hi-hat, and it's a very, you know, chick 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 really driving in, they lock in with the piano. Um, and then the bass comes in as the one thing that isn't, at least initially, very propulsive. It's more of this sort of strummed double stop, but it fits really well in the mix. Okay, so listen back to the original recording and keep an ear out for all of that. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day, 
Okay, so now Simone's left hand is in, so there are low notes in the bass, and the guitar has snuck in over on the left, just very subtly. So it's subtle, but they're adding layers as we go. So we had the piano come in, we had the hi-hat come in, we had the bass come in, then of course Nina Simone's vocals come in, and shortly after that, her left hand begins playing this steady bass line in the left to go along with that one-handed right-hand pattern, and then the guitar begins to sneak in here as well, mostly the one over on the left. He starts with kind of single chords and then begins to play a more kind of steady groove, and at some point, both of the guitars kind of work their way in, playing pretty similar parts. One last layer of intensity of propulsion that they add is in the bass, Lyle Atkinson begins playing quarter notes. So he starts going from strumming those double stops to playing boom, 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 which adds, of course, significantly to the pulse. It's kind of the first time that he dials into the pulse with the rest of the band. So listen to that whole section. Listen to a kind of a chorus. Once the vocals are in, the guitar is in, the bass is playing those quarter notes, the hi-hat is still happening, the drums. Listen for how this quintet has just slightly modified what they're playing to add more to that sense of propulsion, to that sense that we're going somewhere. Will I run to the rock? Please hide me around the rock. Please hide me around the rock. Please hide me, Lord, all on the day. But the rock cried out. I can't hide you, the rock cried out. So you can feel it, right? It's moving forward. It's just pushing forward. And there's a feeling of questing and searching to this song that I think fits really well with the lyrics, given what the song is about. Now, Sinner Man is being narrated by the singer. The singer is asking this question, Oh, Sinner Man, where are you going to run to? And Sinner Man in question is a sinner on Judgment Day. So this is an apocalyptic song. This is actually taking place, you know, as the sky is falling, as the world is ending, and it's Judgment Day, and it's time for everyone to be judged, and the sinner knows that he is probably not going to heaven, and so he's running, and he runs, you know, to the rock, and I cried out to the rock, why won't you help me? And the rock won't help him. And that's kind of the the narration that's going on is it's this man running and he's running across the landscape looking for somewhere to hide and he can't find anywhere to hide. So there's this kind of frantic propulsion, this, this manic energy to the song that I think is really beautifully served by the way that Simone has arranged the band. And if the rock won't take you, what about the river? So I run to the river. It was bleeding around to the sea. It was bleeding around to the sea. It was bleeding all on that day. It's a dark and pretty scary song. You can picture someone just frantically running around knowing that their time has come and their number is up and they're just desperately looking for somewhere to hide. You know, the river is running red with blood. All of these biblical omens are coming to pass and there is nowhere to hide. 
Now, Simone grew up Eunice Wayman, that's her actual name, and she grew up in North Carolina, and her mother was actually a preacher. So this kind of music, you know, spiritual songs, gospel music, had been a part of Simone's upbringing, and you can hear it in a lot of her music. You know, she brought that sound in as much as she also learned, you know, classical discipline. She she brought in a lot of that sound from her childhood, and this song was a part of her set for a long time, and you can tell she just connects to the source material. She's really invested in telling the story and capturing this person's desperation. In order to do that, she actually pulls an interesting lyric switcheroo. Like I said, this is a narrated song, Oh Sinner Man, Where Are You Gonna Run To? But Nina Simone actually flips it pretty early on in the song and moves to first person and she begins talking about it like she is the sinner man, saying, you know, I run to the river, I run to the rock. And by the end of the song, it's clear that she has fully embodied this character and she's the one crying out to God. She's not describing someone saying, please help me. She is asking Asking, please help me. So I run to the river. It was boiling around to the sea. It was boiling around to the sea. It was boiling all on that day. So I run to the Lord. I think the narrative of this song is actually really frightening, but it's also very effective as this person, you know, is running to the rock, running to the sea, the sea is bleeding, running back to the sea, and then it's boiling. Finally, this sinner man turns his hands up to God and says, don't you see me here? And God says, no. But the Lord said, go to the devil, the Lord said, go to the devil, he said, go to the devil, all on that day. So after running to the rock, to the river, to the sea, to God, and being told to run to the devil, the devil was waiting. And with that, Nina cries power, and we move on to the next section of the song. Now, a little bit more about the harmony of this song. Remember, we're in B minor, and I mentioned that Simone's arrangement of this song is more harmonically complex than, say, that Les Baxter version that we heard earlier that was recorded uh, nine years earlier than Simone's version. Part of that is that she adds a couple of other chords. This song is kind of a blues, uh, the form of this song. It's like a 16-bar blues, or at least is blues-ish. It doesn't exactly adhere to the chord progression because it's it's going between that B minor and that A, so it starts on the B minor and then it goes down to the flat seven. Um, and that is, you know, it's sort of in place of the four chord, which would normally be there during a blues, but the form is still kind of the same. And crucially, the next two chords are the same as they would be in a 16 bar blues, so it goes to an E minor and then to an F sharp, which is the five, um, the five chord in the key of B minor, and that's got that leading tone. The F sharp really wants to resolve back to B minor, and that's a pretty standard blues turnaround. So the four chords in the song are B minor, then A major, then E minor, and then F sharp major or F sharp dominant. That's it. Those are the four chords. So I've kind of recreated the groove of this. I'm going to play through it one time and I'll kind of call out the chords when they happen. And that's just one time through the chorus, which, you know, is repeating through all those sections we just listened to as the sinner man is going to the rock and going to the river and going to the sea and going to God and then going to the devil. That's just the each time he goes to a new place, it's a new chorus. So it's just repeating the same 16 bars over and over again. Well, I guess it's eight bars technically, depending on how you count it, but it's it, the form is basically the form of a 16-bar blues. Let's count it. Here we go. One, two, three. B minor. 
A major, B minor, E minor, F sharp, B minor. So that's the chord progression for the song through this whole first section, right up to where we just stopped, which is a new section, and it's what I think of as the power section for two pretty obvious reasons, the first of which being that uh, Simone is saying power over and over again, and also because this section is very, very powerful. This is a significant uptick in energy, and uh, the tempo, I think, even maybe picks up a little bit. This is where the song kind of has arrived at this just pulsing, throbbing, powerful groove. So a couple of things are happening during this section. One is that they're just vamping on a B minor chord. They're, they've left the chord changes behind and it's just going on a B minor. That A is still kind of in there, like they're going between B minor and A, I guess. It's just kind of pulsing between B minor and A, B minor and A, with a center on B minor. This section goes on for quite a while, which I think is a remarkable thing about it. Um, and it's also something I think that's tied into it being a live performance. The energy here is just really intense and they keep it going much longer than you would expect. You know, it's just a, it's not really concerned with um, sticking to some sort of rigid roadmap. They're just feeling it, and this pulse just goes and goes and goes. So they just sit there on B minor as she just says power over and over again, you know, power of the Lord, and they just keep it cranking. Um, also, the drums have changed their groove. So as Nina starts singing, bring down the power of the Lord, Bobby Hamilton has switched it up, you know, during this section. He's up on the ride cymbal now, and he's doing a pretty standard kind of a groove that you'll hear a lot that combines a cross stick with a rack tom hit along with the uh, ride cymbal with the right hand. And it kind of sounds like this. So that opens the groove way up, you know, it involves the whole drum set in a way that just that closed pattern on the hi-hat up to this point totally didn't, and that really changes the groove, along with the fact that they're pulsing between these two chords, and also there are backup vocals in, you know, it's uh, it's pretty much just the whole band saying power of the Lord, or, you know, power to the Lord behind Nina as she cries out power, but um, it is backup vocals, so it's yet another musical element that's introduced during this section, and it's just, it gets into this, like, really killer kind of trance-like groove as it just pushes forward over and over and over again. So I'm not actually playing this whole section. The section is very long. It's worth listening to the recording to check out just how long it is. But they just get going into this, you know, full groove and then they destroy the whole thing. Man, that is so good. If you're going to crash your entire arrangement into a wall, crash your entire arrangement into the wall with that much energy. So I think of this as kind of the deterioration section. This is where the whole groove that they've built has now kind of crashed into a wall. You know, there's that big crash, and then they begin to take it apart piece by piece. 
this is actually where you can hear both guitars. There's one guitar playing kind of more lead parts over on the left, while another guitar plays rhythmically over on the right. And Simona's out completely, there's no piano in. So you don't hear Nina at all until she begins to clap. And if you listen closely with headphones, you can hear her rhythmically breathing in time with the music as she gets ready to start clapping and bring on the next section. So here we are at last. This is the signature interlude of this song. This is a really incredible section that I'm psyched to talk about. Even before the piano comes in, there's so much cool stuff that you can hear in this recording if you really turn up the volume. As I mentioned, you can kind of hear Simone into her microphone. She's sort of breathing in time with the music and getting ready to clap when everybody else in the band starts to clap. And that's what's happening at the point when it's all just clapping. You know, it's it's all five members of the band clapping. Um, you can kind of just hear a lot of ambient noise because this was recorded live, you can hear the pickups and the bass over on the right are just kind of registering um, as he claps. You can just hear the motion of, of his arms picked up in the pickups. And you can hear the air moving around on stage. It, it doesn't quite sound like a studio recording, and it's really cool. It's one reason that it's worth listening to this with the volume really turned up to pay attention for those little noises. You can hear someone's foot tapping on the stage. There's that resonance. I think it's the bass pickup, but it might also just be one of the drums just resonating because they're clapping close to it. You can also hear an interesting acoustic phenomenon known as phase canceling, or at least I think that's kind of what you're hearing. Just sometimes it'll feel a little bit like the claps cancel one another out or one or two claps. There's just sort of like a little vacuum space that appears where one of the claps should be. And I think that what's happening there is phase canceling. You know, I'm not an expert um, in acoustics, but basically that that means that if two identical sounds happen and they're in opposite sides of the waveform, like the waveform happens to be moving down on one and up on the other, they cancel each other out and you get this weird kind of vacuum sound in your ear, which is actually what a phaser effect does. If you turn a phaser on like a, as a guitar pedal, it's doing that um, deliberately to your tone to create that kind of sense of a hole getting cut out of your tone. And this is happening here just naturally because there are five people clapping and their hands are making very similar pitches. So sometimes the wave forms are canceling one another out. So with this completely different groove established, Nina gets her hands back on the keys and begins to play.
Now this to me is the magic of this song. This section is my favorite section. It's so freaking cool. And it's the kind of thing that only Nina Simone could have come up with because it just doesn't really quite sound like anything else. It's such a distinctive piano part, the way that they've created this clapping groove, the arpeggios that she's playing, the kind of pattern that she finds, the way that it starts in this loose way and then coalesces. It's just, it doesn't sound like anything else and it's really, really cool. So the piano part she comes in on, this is just kind of still going between B minor and A major, those same two chords that have been featured, you know, pretty pretty consistently throughout this song. But she's playing them in this syncopated arpeggio way that, you know, sounds a little bit like um, flamenco music or something. She's just bringing in another interesting influence here. And she's playing down from B minor, then down to A major, and just bouncing back and forth between those two chords. So listen to it from where she comes in on the piano, and then pay attention for how she begins to develop it, because she does a good job of developing it. And this is, I think, semi-improvised. I'm sure she's played this song a lot of times, so she does something like this. But she's kind of, you know, feeling it out and she develops the the riff that she's playing and begins to add more harmony to it in a neat way. So that's the first major development. She's playing up in that higher octave and she's keeping things kind of constrained within that one octave, but then all at once she plays this little riff that lets her carry down to a lower octave and she begins playing chords. So the riff that carries down sounds like this, and then the chords sound like this. It's one of those elegant blinking you'll miss it transitions, but it takes her from those syncopated higher notes where she's playing single notes down into playing chords and she's now playing triads between B minor and A major. So still the same harmony, nothing major has changed. She's just playing it very differently and in a different register. So listen back again to that piano part and pay attention for when she does that walk down and how she kind of cleverly sets it up, then walks down and begins playing chords for the next little section of her solo. Here we go. And then... love that dramatic part where her left hand gets involved. She begins to play octaves, you know, down on that low B. She's doing all that, um, those chords with her right hand. Again, this is Nina Simone having much better piano technique than I do, because um, I'm kind of faking it to, to make the same sounds, but she's playing it just perfectly. And you can tell she's really feeling it too. Like this is not, you know, about uber precision. It's just about the feel and she's really in the zone and she's playing this. But I really, really like how she drops that left hand octave in and sort of escalates things significantly. And from there they bring things down even more. Oh yeah! 
Then they start to build it back up. And from there, they kind of just start over again from the beginning. You know, they've done this big crash into a wall, the whole thing falls apart, and then they get into this really cool sort of clapped piano breakdown that Nina develops into this chordal thing that she starts playing that then goes way down to almost nothing and allows the band to come back in one at a time before they start all the way over from the beginning. That piano part is so cool. That bum 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 bum. It's kind of a three over four thing where the piano part um, has three beats in it, but the tempo is still in four four. So it just creates this this really neat sort of overlaid uh, quality that anything that's in three over four does, where it only syncs up with the beat every so many repetitions. Now this piano section is probably the most musically enduring part of the song, which is interesting because it's very different from the the meat of the song, and it's only you know like a minute of a ten minute track. But it's been sampled by a couple of really high profile songs, um, and it works really well as a sample. And I think it's actually kind of interesting to look at how it was used in two of the uh, two of the early two thousands hip hop tunes that sampled it. So I want to take a second to look at those. Let's actually go in reverse order though, because I think that the earlier one is more interesting than the later one. So let's start with the 2007 Timbaland track, Oh Timbaland, which heavily samples um, from Nina Simone's Sinnerman and actually repurposes it to be kind of the hook of the song. So this is actually a pretty cool way to start it, just with the groove from the piano interlude. And once the listener is hooked, the beat drops. Timbaland has definitely added a pop to that groove. He is not interested in doing a groove that is only thump and sizzle. So from there, he actually just hangs out on that groove. Um, he's still in B minor. You know, they haven't changed the, the pitch of the sample or anything. And he kind of just keeps it going there. When he gets to the chorus, he kind of brings Nina's voice into the mix. So basically, he's cutting it up so he can insert his name where she says Sinnerman, so it sounds like she's saying Oh Timbaland, and then he can respond to her. It's a little bit like he's doing a duet with Nina Simone. So it's fun enough, though it doesn't do a whole ton with the source material. He's kind of just rapping over Nina Simone, which, hey, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's got a pretty cool groove, and uh, I get why he would want to work with it. However, I really like the other early 2000s hip-hop tune that samples this. I am referring, of course, to the 2002 Talib Kweli track, Get By, which was produced by Kanye West. It uses the same piano part, that piano part from the interlude, but it does something, I think at least, a lot more musically creative with it. Check it out. We sell crack to our own out the back of our homes. We smell the musk of the dusk and the crack of the dawn. We go through episodes too, like attack of the clones. What till we break a bag and you hear the crack of the Now here the we go. Just to get by, just to get by, just to get by. We commute the computer, spirits stay mute while your ego spread rumors. We survivalists turn to consumers. Just to get by, just to get by. 
Now that is cool. I love how this track uses that sample. I don't know if this was Kanye, probably Kanye. Um, this is a great call and a really cool way to use it. They're doing a couple of interesting things. First of all, this tune is actually in D minor. So they've gone up a minor third and they've taken the sample and they've pitch corrected it up a minor third. So it's just a little bit higher. And then they're totally repurposing the harmony, especially once that chorus comes in compared to what it is in the original. So what they're doing is they're implying a new harmony over the existing sample that gives it this very distinct and dramatic flavor. It's super cool. The bass line is adding this sort of ascending minor bass line, while the piano sample is still just moving between those two chords and, if anything, moving down. So again, we get that kind of contrary motion that is a very cool and pleasing sound while the bass moves up and the piano moves down, implying a whole new harmony. Now I'm no expert in samples, but that to me is a really cool way to use a sample. I love this track. I think it's really cool what they're doing with Nina Simone's piano playing and like a worthy use of what she initially recorded. It's one of the many ways that Nina Simone's recording carries on through the years. And, you know, while the original recording itself is great, it's very cool to see it being creatively reused the way that it has been on those two tracks and in plenty of other places, as well as all the other interpretations of Cinderman that are out there, many of which are very influenced by Nina Simone's interpretation. It was a traditional song, but her arrangement and her interpretation went on to kind of become definitive because it's just so good. Nina Simone recorded a lot of music, but Cinderman is a classic for a reason, and I think that that interlude is such it's such a cool distillation of her musical energy, of the kind of intensity and power that she brought to a performance, the way that she could bring things down so, so quiet and so tight, and then bring them back up and build back to another climax. And that's really what they get into on the second half of this song. So I ran to the Lord, I said, Lord, hide me. Please help me, please help me all on that day. So structurally, the second half is just a reprise of the first half, but the intensity is dialed up significantly, especially with her voice, you know. They've just been going at it for quite a while now, you know, we're like six minutes, seven minutes into the song. So she's really just letting loose vocally. There's not actually a whole lot more to break down on this song. You know, I don't want to just play the entire second half of it. Um, It just keeps going and it builds and builds. And eventually they build back up to the power section. And it's even more intense, even more roiling and even more just desperate and pushing as it really just goes for that energy of a desperate person looking for some sort of salvation when there is none. Power! 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 
One thing that I'm just not going to be able to capture on this show is how long that power section goes on for. Like, they'll do, you know, two times through the phrase, and that feels like one complete phrase. And if you're listening to it, kind of expecting them to go on to the next section the way that you might, you'll just keep thinking, wow, they're they're just doing it again. Oh my gosh, they're doing it again and again and again, and it keeps going because it's just this, like I said, it's this roiling energy. It's like a boil, like a really, a really hard boil. The water is just kind of popping out of the pot, and and they're just going and going and going and going and going until finally the whole thing breaks. Man, all right. So I don't even know where to begin with this cadenza. This is the most extended high energy cadenza I can think of off the top of my head. It is bananas. Now, I know I've been using that word cadenza. A cadenza is basically usually during a solo feature at the end when the orchestra or the band stops and the time drops out and the soloist just improvises and plays something by themselves. This is often where the greatest soloists really get to show off. It's the most dramatic moment right before the finale of the song. And Nina Simone's cadenza on Cinderman is certainly dramatic. So the time drops out, the band stays in, but the time is sort of suspended. Nina goes completely off. I mean, I love this thing she does on the piano here. <laughs> Come on. That is some classic stuff. You can only do that on a full 88-key keyboard. Um, this is an F-sharp chord. We're on the 5 chord here. And if you remember from way back, one of the very first episodes that I did was about Stevie Wonder and his song, I Wish. And I had some theories about why maybe Stevie Wonder favored the black keys when he was writing his, you know, iconic keyboard riffs. And um, F-sharp is a very black key-centric key. You know, it's just uh, uh, there are a lot of sharps and flats, and the black keys are the sharps and flats. So when you're playing an F-sharp, you can kind of just, like, bang away on the black keys the way that Nina does here. Obviously, she's very she's very good at it, and she's not just totally randomly banging, but, uh, but it does really help if you're playing a key with a lot of black keys. So I feel like piano players probably like F-sharp for that reason. Don't you know I need you, Lord? Don't you know that I need you? Don't you know ha, 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 that I need you? I'm a little bit at a loss here. I mean, what do you say about a performance this raw? She is so in the zone. She's kind of transcended where she is and is just feeling the music in this very pure way. The rest of this build is just, you know, she sticks around on that F sharp. She's kind of going between E minor and F sharp and she builds up to that leading tone, you know, the, the B flat, which is the leading tone that really wants to resolve. So it gives this great sense of tension and you know where she's going when she does it. Power. Power. 
And believe it or not, this isn't even the end of the song. They keep going for a while. They just keep going. It's like they've built up so much energy that to let it all out, they just need to keep going and going and going. That kind of energy, that kind of power, I I honestly don't even know how to describe it. It's just something that you hear. I don't think there are really words for it. Near the beginning of that documentary, What Happened Miss Simone, there's an excerpt from an interview she gave in 1968 where she talks about what she thinks of as freedom, what the word means to her, and the freedom that she experiences as a performer, and it's pretty incredible. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's like, how do you tell somebody how it feels to be in love? How are you going to tell anybody who has not been in love how it feels to be in love? You cannot do it to save your life. You can describe things, but you can't tell them. But you know it when it happens. That's what I mean by free. I've had a couple of times on stage when I really felt free. And that's something else. That's really something else. Like all, all, like, like, I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. Nina Simone's music is so often about that freedom from fear, whether explicitly or just in the music. And it's such a beautiful thing considering how many freedoms were denied her just because of where she was born and the color of her skin. Her music was defined by her pursuit of freedom. And while that chase was her own, there's something in it that I think we can all relate to. We all struggle with fear, and we all yearn for a freedom from it. At her best, Nina Simone was as fearless a performer as has ever lived, as fearless a musician, and as free, too. She was a musical force like no other, and when she sat down at the piano and played, all we heard was power and freedom. And that'll do it for my analysis of Nina Simone's Sinner Man, an incredible recording that I really recommend you go listen to in its entirety if you haven't. And then I recommend watching the Netflix documentary What Happened Miss Simone, which would make a great counterpart to this episode, largely because I focused more on the specifics of the music of this track, where the documentary is more about her, her life, and the times that she lived in. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks so much to all of you who've been spreading the word and telling your friends about this show. That means a lot. Also, thank you to all of my patrons on Patreon to find out more about how to support me making this show, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. And hey, sign up for my newsletter if you like. There's a link down in the show notes. This episode's outro soloist is the wonderful Bay Area accordionist Rob Reich. So stick around for Rob and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.
Thank you.